So there are many, many different forms of human expression. And we express ideas mostly with words. That's our most common form of expression. We also express ideas via drawing. More recently, we have other means, um, such as uh, what we call today motion picture or acting. Um, but the most powerful form of human expression is through song. Through song, through music, it's the most powerful way to impact a person. It changes our moods. It changes music, exp changes the way we feel. It allows us to fully feel we've expressed ourselves in ways that we cannot do with words. Emotions that cannot, strong emotions, powerful emotions cannot be expressed with words. Maybe poets have a knack at expressing it with words. But even then, even the best poetry can never fully express emotion with words. But song and music is able to express human feelings in ways that, and human experiences, uh, in ways that words and even drawings cannot do. When a person is happy and elated, you can burst into a joyous song to express that feeling of happiness. When a person is sad and unhappy, they turn into a mournful um, or a sad song to express their feelings. It's a way to express your feelings. And not only that, songs create feelings. When a person hears lively music, it gets you into a good mood. When you feel sad, uh, mournful music, it gets you into a depressed mood. It gets you into a sad mood. When you feel a music of yearning, um, uh, of a deep meditative music, it gets you into a kind of deep, relaxed, meditative mood. They, really, the song impacts your mood. And for that reason, every single culture in history has had music and song as a very, very important part of their culture. Types of music, types of song really vary from culture to culture, but every culture has music. And in Judaism, too, from the earliest times, we've always used song to express our feelings and also to express our relationship with God in a religious sense, to express our joy at a religious joyful time, to express our thanks when we are appreciative of something, to express our sadness when we're upset about something, when we're mourning something, to express yearning when there's something that we greatly need, or when we want to express a deep feeling of love or other great deep feelings. We could have songs of yearning, um, including feelings for God are all expressed through song. But because of the great power of music and song, in Judaism, we also put some very, very strong limits on music as well. You've got to be very careful. It's very powerful, but its power can be used for good. But like all powerful things, the more powerful it is, also the more harm it can cause as well. So you've got to be very careful with it. It can be very good and very bad. And so not all music is encouraged, not music in every time or every place. So music goes back to the very beginning of the Torah. In fact, in the very beginning of Genesis, it tells about the invention of music. It tells about a fellow called Yuval, a descendant of Cain, who invented the harp and the flute. 
Now, some commentaries say that it wasn't, don't see this positively. They think he created music originally for pagan worship, but definitely it's something that will later be used for spiritual, for godly worship in Judaism. So they're definitely, in the long run, even if he himself did not use it for positive reasons, for good reasons, at least from our perspective, there were, it does, music, of course, will end up being used for good. But the first spiritual mention of song in the Torah is right after Israel leaves Egypt in the story of the Exodus, and they miraculously cross the sea. Moses splits the sea for them. And after they cross the sea, and then the Egyptians try following them into the sea, and the Egyptians all drown in the sea, and then Moses and the children of Israel burst into song, and they sing, Az Yashir Moshe Ovenei Yisrael. Moses and the children of Israel sing this song. It's a somewhat long song that they sing, and that's written out in the Torah as a song, we have all the lyrics, at least the words of the song that they sang. After Moses and the people sang, well, while Moses and the people sang the song, um, his sister Miriam, Moses' sister Miriam, led the women in singing along with cymbals, cymbals are the that, 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 that you bang with, and dancing, um, and she led the women in music and dancing as well, in song as well. The title is Tambourines. Maybe Tambourines. Tupim is the Hebrew word. Moses, usually tupim are translated as symbols, but yeah, I know the kind of, the culture is tambourines, yes. Yes? Why don't we have a cantor here at this point? Great question, let's get that later. So later in the Torah, Moses is going to lead the people in singing a much shorter song, the Song of the Well. This is after... Um, after he um, bangs the rock and hits the rock and water comes out and then later they're saved from um, Emirates who try to attack them. Um, so Moses sings this song of the well. Um, it's a much, much shorter song. Later, Moses composes a song, the song of the ages, which is a song at the very, very end of the Torah, the second last reading Parsha of the Torah, the portion of Ha'azinu. It's a very long song that tells the secret of Jewish history. And it tells kind of it's a song of the ages. Moses describes the song as the song that should always be in your mouths. You shall never forget it. Always sing it because this will hold, this song will keep you going throughout the ages. And this is a very powerful song of Ha'azinu. Um, that's the third song that we actually have the words written out in the Torah. Now, all of these were obviously sang with a, sung with a tune. We don't know any of the original tunes. Unfortunately, while Jews had writing from early time, we never had music notes. Um, we did, we're going to talk about, but we didn't have music notes um, as we would call them today. And so we don't have those tunes that did not survive, but we do have the wording for them at least. When we read the Torah, though, we always chant the Torah with a tune. We have a tune, in Hebrew it's called ta'amim, a tune that we use to chant the Torah. For the chanting of the Torah, we do have notes that we use to chant the Torah. While the notes are pretty much universal for all Jewish communities, there are slight variations on exactly how the notes are chanted. Ashkenazic Jews have one form of chanting, and various Sephardic communities have various different forms of chanting the Torah. But we do chant the Torah using notes that the Torah was written with, um, those slight variations. Um, 
And we do sing the Torah. Every time we read the Torah, we sing the Torah. Later, the books of our, in the books of our prophets, we find many songs written as well. There's a song written by Devorah, the um, Shofetet, the leader of Israel, after she wins a war against the Canaanites. She sings a song, um, and we're going to read that. Um, uh, um, she sings a song, and then there is the, uh, a song sung by King David after God saves him from all of his enemies. There is a song in the book of Samuel. Um, there's a song sung by, at the beginning of Samuel, by Hannah, by the, Samuel's mother, after Samuel is born, after many years of her not having children. Um, so we have a number of songs in the books of our prophets. When we read the books of our prophets, we also have a chant. Different than the tune that we use to chant the Torah, we have a different tune that we use to chant the prophets. And when we recite the half Torah, which we did a class on a couple months ago, and we, which always is from the books of our prophets, we use the chanting tune for the books of our prophets. Not only the books of our prophets have a chant, all the other books of the writings of our holy scriptures each have their own chant. Um, the chants of many of the books of the writings are not known um, because they weren't read regularly, and so um, communities did not preserve the tunes. However, we do have tunes to chant the five Megillot, the five scrolls, which are five of the bo- sh- five shorter books of the writings that are read for different occasions. The book of Esther, the book of Kohelet Ecclesiastes, Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, um, Ruth, um, Echa, Lamentations, and um, I just mentioned all five. Esther, um, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, and Lamentations. So we have tunes for all of those to chant those. We chant those in the synagogue at various different occasions. So we do have the chance for that. Um, now the whole book of Psalms itself is a book of songs. That's what it is. It is all a book of songs. Um, 150 songs or 150 different songs that were written, mostly by King David, but we have many different authors, 10 authors of Psalms in total. And... Um, the various authors wrote these songs to be sung with music. Um, many psalms open with a particular instrument that should be used in order to um, uh, in order to sing that particular psalm. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any of the tunes of psalms. There is um, a chant for psalms, which some people have a tradition, although there's no universal tradition as to how to chant psalms. There is a chant for psalms, but we don't have the tunes. Presumably, each song of psalms was originally composed as a different tune. Um, We don't any longer have those tunes, but there are those um, tunes from psalms. They were definitely originally composed as songs, and perhaps it kind of climaxes with the last psalm, Psalm 150, that we read every day in our prayers, where um, King David, it's, uh, um, it starts, Hallelujah, praise God, Hallelujah, um, uh, praise Him in His holiness, and then um, it continues saying, praise Him with various instruments, and it leaves, uh, it lists various instruments, praise Him with a flute, praise Him with a harp, um, praise Him with um, cymbals, praise Him with lars, um, lyres, um, play, pr- praise Him with various different instruments that they had back then, and then it continues to say, um, praise Him um, with the um, sounds, shama, halu praise Him with the sounds that are heard, and the sounds of the shofar blast, 
And then it concludes that, and says every soul will praise God. In other words, we conclude by praising God with our voices that join in with all the musical instruments, all together praising God. So these are all songs that were all written again um, over the years by David, by others, um, in order to praise God. While we don't have the tunes, we definitely have the words um, as they are in the book of Psalms. <clears throat> Later, we continued to write songs. There is a, from, from the Second Temple period, or late Second Temple period, we have a book called Parakshira, which is, literally means the song chapter, which describes, uh, it's a song essentially written with all the different animals, um, known animals at the time, and various different items in, in, in nature, um, all sing diff- various praises to God quoting various verses that describe praises from different animals uh, called Parakshira. Uh, presumably it was also ri- originally written with a tune. We no longer have that. Um, we no longer have those tunes, but they were originally written with a tune. And even as we recite the words of the Torah, not only Torah itself, but even the oral Torah, as we study the Talmud um, or other books, Jews have always studied with a tune. There's always been kind of a, a, a chant in the way we've studied historically, um, we've always used tune to, um, to, um, to study whenever we study to God, whenever we study God's Torah. Yes. It's an easier way to, or at least I find it easier to remember those. A very good point. It's a lot easier to remember when you study with tune, and that is why the Talmud says you should always study with tune, because it's much easier to remember your studies that way. You're absolutely right. Very good point. Yes. Are there markings in the Torah to tell you how the tune is to be? Not in the written Torah, but it's in our oral tradition, and it's written in a chumash. If you have a chumash, the um, book, printed book of the Torah, it has, in addition to the vowels that is not found in the Torah itself, it also has the trop, the markings, that tell you exactly how to print out, how to sing it. So the temple stood at the center of Judaism for the first 1,500 years or so of our history. Um, It was destroyed about um, almost 2,000 years ago. Central to the temple was the singing and music that was played and sung by the Levites from the tribe of Levi. Whenever the sacrifices were brought in the temple and on all special occasions, the Levites would play instruments. They played many, many different instruments. They had a whole orchestra that they would play, and they would also have um, singers that would sing, and they would sing these songs. In fact, many of the songs in the book of Psalms were written to be played in the temple. And they say so often in the introduction, kind of there's usually an intro line to each psalm in the book of Psalms, often that it mentions the author, sometimes mentions the particular type of song. There's various terms for various songs, although we're not sure what each one actually is. Sometimes we'll tell you the particular instrument. Um, and so sometimes it makes it very clear that it was written for a particular event in the temple or for particular things in the temple. Some things we have a tradition of which songs were sung by the Le- which psalms were sung by the Levites each day of the week. There was a different song. Various holidays there were different songs. Um, for various occasions there were different songs. So these were all sung by the Levites in the temple. In addition, there were times they had great celebrations in the temple. This was particularly on the nights of Sukkot. On the festival of Sukkot, a seven-day festival we have every year, just uh, two weeks after Rosh Hashanah, the, um, 
the, during the festival of Sukkot in the Holy Temple, there was a special mitzvah of nisuch hamayim, to pour water on the altar. A special thing they did when they brought the morning sacrifice, they would pour water on the altar. Before drawing the water from the, um, from the pool, Shiloach pool, which was at the um, southern end of Jerusalem, there was a pool where they would draw water from. Before they did that, it, they would celebrate in the temple an entire night. And it is described in great detail in the Mishnah that um, how the Levites would stand on the steps above the women's courtyard. They would have a whole orchestra playing. They would have singers singing. And they would have, and then the people would stand at the bottom. It was called the women's courtyard because it had um, balconies. Uh, the women were upstairs on balconies. The men were downstairs. And um, they would, the people would be singing and dancing um, to the music an entire night. And um, then in the morning, they would draw, go draw the water, and they would pour the water on the altar. And this happened every night of Sukkot. Um, and they had this music and this singing every night of Sukkot. Yes, Carol? You said the people, and then you talked about the women. The men were downstairs, the women were upstairs. So were the <laughs> men all in the orchestra? Were they all singing? The orchestra was only Levites. was only from a tribe of Levi, which was all men. Only men. It was only men that was serving. Only that men was playing. Yes. Only men singing and only men dancing. No, dancing. Again, the men were downstairs. The women were upstairs. Oh, so the women could dance, but they were separated. <coughs> that was the first. Yeah, that was when that was the first kind of separation of men and women, and then later it became a standard. And the women couldn't be playing the tambourines while the men were playing. They could have been, but the orchestra on the steps were Levites. The Levites were all men. Levites are so. When you say Levites, you mean just men? Levite men, yes. So the Holy Temple was a place that was filled with. The Holy Temple was a place filled with music and song. So song and music had a very, very important place in Judaism in general. Um, songs that were created for various occasions at various times. There were many songs in Judaism um, and for in, it found in the Torah itself and in scripture. And it was used for the service of God as well, particularly in the Holy Temple. However, there were also limits placed on music. Some big limits were added to music over the years. At one point, and this is in the early days of Judaism, in the first couple hundred years of Judaism, our sages added to the rules of Shabbat. The Torah tells us that on Shabbat there are 39 prohibited, or oral Torah tells us that there are 39 things, acts, that are prohibited to do on Shabbat. We once did a class where we went over the 39 things prohibited on, to do on Shabbat. However, are the Torah allowed the sages, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, to add to any laws of the Torah, which they did. They added to many laws of the Torah over the years by uh, making rules to keep us from coming close to transgressing any of the original biblical rules. So they added a lot, many, dozens of rules to the prohibitions of Shabbat, the rules, the, rab the rabbinic rules as they're called, are the rules created by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism in the early days of Judaism. 
um, to expand the prohibitions of Shabbat are known collectively as Shvut. Shvut, which means resting. They're laws of resting. So many of these laws were created. Among the dozens of various laws of Shvut, of rabbinic prohibitions on Shabbat to keep us from any of the 39 prohibited forms of work on Shabbat, our sages banned us from playing musical instruments on Shabbat and holidays. And the reason for this is if the instrument breaks, then one will. And breaks even where it's off tune and you need to just tune it, then one may come to fix it. Fixing an instrument, like fixing anything broken on Shabbat, is one of the 39 prohibited acts called bone building. So because they were concerned that people would regularly fix instruments as they were playing them, they therefore banned the playing of all musical instruments on Shabbat. So now in the Holy Temple, we mentioned the Levites play music every day. So in the Holy Temple itself, they also brought sacrifices every day. Among the prohibitions of Shabbat is not slaughtering, not burning, not lighting fires, not cooking, all prohibited things on Shabbat. Nevertheless, the Torah commands us, commanded us that they should still offer sacrifices on Shabbat. So the rules of Shabbat were superseded by the command to offer sacrifices in the temple. In the same way, when our sages banned use of musical instruments on Shabbat and festivals, they only banned, they did not ban it in the temple. So the Levites continued to play musical instruments on Shabbat in the temple. Although this point is debated in the Talmud in Sukkah, but that's generally the accepted view is that they did continue playing musical instruments on Shabbat. However, that was only the musical instruments that were part of the sacrificial service. However, all music in the temple outside of the sacrificial service was banned. And as a result, the great celebrations they would have every night of Sukkot, they stopped doing them on the first night of Sukkot. The first night of Sukkot was Yom Tov, is a holiday outside of Israel. The first two nights are a Yom Tov, are a holiday um, where we don't work. But in Israel, it's only one night. So, but the first night of Sukkot is a Yom Tov, is a holiday where we're not allowed to do any melacha, we're not allowed to do any other forbidden forms of work. And so therefore, that ban of playing instruments would apply, as well as Sukkot is seven days. So there's always one Shabbat over Sukkot. So on the Shabbat of Sukkot, also they would not play any instruments in the temple, and they would not have the dancing in the temple on the night, the first night of Sukkot, which itself could be Shabbat sometime, some years, depending on um, what day of the week Sukkot begins, or whatever other night of Sukkot was Shabbat, they would not have the music and dancing because the sages banned the playing of musical <coughs> instruments. So, so playing musical instruments was banned entirely on Shabbat and festivals. Sometime before the destruction of the temple, um, in uh, the second temple, that is, um, our sages, not long before the destruction, there was an issue of Jews apparently going to various bars or what they called in the Talmud wine houses 
They weren't big beer drinkers at the time. It was only wine. Uh, but they would go to wine houses. And uh, apparently there were lots of problems, lots of trouble. And so they, the sages, the Sanhedrin, that is the Supreme Council of Judaism at the time, banned playing music at bars, at wine houses. Cannot play music at the bars. In order to ban, they banned the discos uh, because they were leading to lots and lots of trouble. <laughs> With the destruction of the temple, when the temple was destroyed, our sages, the, men, the members of the Sanhedrin Supreme Council that outlived the temple and reconvened in Yavna with Roman permission right after the destruction of the temple, um, our sages made many, many rules to commemorate the destruction of the temple so that we never forget they wanted us to essentially be in perpetual mourning for the destruction of the temple, to never forget the destruction. And they made many rules that we should do, to, we should incorporate to always, even in the time of greatest joy, where everyone knows we, um, when, at, under a chuppah, when a couple gets married, at the end of the ceremony, um, the groom breaks a glass. And one of the reasons given is to remember the destruction of the temple, never to be too happy because we're always in mourning over the fact that our temple lies in ruins. And so a person has to always remember the destruction. We have a few weeks in the summer where we've dedicated to mourning the destruction of the temple. So they made a number of rules to always keep in mind the destruction of the temple, to always retain that sense of mourning, that life or our, our, our reality is not the way it should be. Because the ideal Judaism is with the temple standing with the service in the temple and we're missing it. It's a great tragedy that we don't have the temple and we always need to be cognizant of that and recognize that and realize that. So never get too happy. So because of that, because of that, our sages... Right after the destruction, the men of the great and the men of the um, the leaders of the Supreme Council of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, banned all playing of music, all music, except at a mitzvah celebration. So a mitzvah celebration would be like a wedding. A wedding, it's a great mitzvah to get married. So at a mitzvah celebration, they allowed for playing of music, but except for that. And even there, they, had, they made rules to kind of lower our tempo or of our joy at the wedding as well. Don't get too happy. But except for a mitzvah, they banned the playing of music. So, later scholars debated as to how, what exactly was banned and how extensive this ban of music actually is. Maimonides, one of our great Jewish scholars, lived in the 12th century, and one of the most important authorities on Jewish law, he was of the view that all music was banned. All music is banned. It is forbidden to ever play music except at an event for a mitzvah, such as a wedding. It is forbidden to ever play music. Um, he also points out that singing at bars, or, uh, that at bars not only is music banned, but even singing is banned. That's what he writes originally. In a later, later, he went even further and banned all singing and all music. He says all of it is absolutely forbidden. That was Maimonides? However, Maimonides. Okay. 
However, many Jewish scholars, most Jewish scholars disagreed with that. And most Jewish scholars followed the view of our great sage Rashi. Rashi lives in the 10th century, one of the greatest Jewish sages, um, who said that only music in bars is forbidden. <coughs> music in bars is forbidden. Um, you cannot go to the bar and um, have music while, with people drinking um, just without celebrating anything in particular, without any particular purpose other than just making merry, just um, that, that was forbidden. However, inspirational music, to inspire yourself, to relax yourself, to um, celebrate for a valid celebration, that's fine. That's fine. Inspirational music or music for a purpose is fine. What was banned is only music in bars. So these two opinions continued to be debated throughout much of our history for the last thousand years. There were those that disliked or um, felt that our sages really banned music entirely and discouraged music. Um, less though, uh, most scholars were of the view that music is and was and is okay. And we should definitely play music so long as it is for a meaningful purpose. Music in bars just for a party, for no particular purpose, just to be able to sell more, um, more liquor. That is not just for people to relax at the end of a day. That is not um, a Jewish ideal. That was forbidden. We do it. We ban it because it leads to negative things. We ban it because it's in mourn because we're in mourning for our temple. In general, our sages ban drinking in bars. Um, in many descriptions from Jews in Europe, from the old country, you read the kind of these descriptions. People write what Jewish life was like, and time and again they draw the contrast between Jews and their Christian neighbors in the villages. This is kind of back when most people were villagers, were farmers, serfs, you know, kind of living, living on the land. Um, and, you know, the towns and villages had Jews and Christians living side by side. And the Christians, at the end of a long day's work, most of them kind of worked the land, you know, with farmers or, you know, small um, artisans. And at the end of a long day's work, they all ended up going to the local bar, local pub, right? Every village had a pub, and everyone would go to the pub and drink. And um, kind of you have those pictures of old town, old England, or even old town America, right? Each town had its pub, and everyone would go to the pub and drink. While the Jews would not drink, they would go at the end of the day. They would go to the base medrash, to the house of learning, and everybody would go and study. That's what Jews did. And this contrast is mentioned time and again. Bars was just not a Jewish thing to do. Jews celebrated events. Jews did celebrate and did drink. No question about it. Um, Jews definitely celebrated. <laughs> Jews definitely drank on fest festive occasions, on various occasions. But they always drank on an occasion. The idea of going to the going to a bar at the end of a long day just to kind of drink it off um, was never a Jewish thing. That Jews never did. Um, it was banned um, by our sages a very very long time ago. And it was just frowned upon. It was unacceptable to do. Um, Jews didn't frequent bars. So Jews did have their own you know, engagement and marriage parties. Um, and definitely they drank then. Um, 
And we would drink, you know, Purim, of course, and, you know, other festive occasions, Simchat Torah. Um, the, every Shabbat we had wine, right? We definitely drank alcohol. Um, and once did a class on juice and alcohol some time ago. We spoke about this more in detail, but Jews did not go to bars. Well, I have a question about the music part. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't just show up and play music. You've got to learn how to play. You have to practice and study right. and get together and rehearse. So if the ban is you can only play on special celebrations, I would think that would lead to a total ban on music because it would be so bad. That That's a very good question. Play. What about what about learning to play music? Right. That's an so excellent question. So right, right. So clearly, even Maimonides, who only allows you to play um, at weddings and at real occasions, allows people to study and learn and practice to play music. Because otherwise, how would you have right. Jewish bands, right? So Where would you get right? It's the performance that was bad, not the practice. Absolutely, yes, clearly. Now, songs continue to be very important in Judaism, even after the destruction of the temple. Um, in Jewish prayer, we have many piyutim, many many poems that were written. In fact, poetry was a very very central part of Judaism. I hope the one they do a class on poetry. Um, Jewish poetry, very, very important. Um, and so poetry was a very, very important part of Judaism. In fact, um, poetry was probably stronger in Judaism, while it exists in almost every culture. Um, it was stronger and generally more advanced in Jewish culture than almost any other culture, um, contemporary culture. Um, Jews were very, very advanced in poetry and extensively wrote poetry. Um, it, was, it, was, it was really a very strong um, Jewish thing. Um, unfortunately, poetry in general in our culture no longer has the role that it used to have, no longer has the uh, place that it used to have, uh, but poetry is very important. And along with poetry, we also had um, music came along with the poetry, songs that were sung and that were composed. And so at least from the late Talmudic period or post-Talmudic period, um, when we would pray, and it may go back even earlier, when we would pray, there would be, we would be led by a cantor. And the cantor would sing the prayers, um, often chant the prayers, but sing with a song, sing the prayers. Um, and the various cantors composed various poets, composed various poetry, which themselves, those po- poems were often sung in the synagogues. Starting about the 10th or 11th century, um, there was at the time a large and growing community in Germany. Most of the Jews in Germany were living pretty close to each other at this time along the Rhine Valley in West Germany. Um, and uh, the Jews at this time really developed what later became the Ashkenazic um, liturgy, Ashkenazic custom, um, things that became later unique to what was later identified as Ashkenazic, which originally means German, but European Jewry in general. So at this time, Ashkenazic Jews developed this very, very unique tune system for prayer. And for every special occasion, we developed a different tune. So there was special tune for Friday night, for Shabbat morning, for Shabbat afternoon, for each of the festivals, for um, Rosh Chodesh, the new month. For Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur, for each of the different prayers, we had different tunes, um, which became known as a nusach, or version. And we don't know who invented them, who wrote these original tunes, where they came from, 
but they became very, very prominent in the Ashkenazic Jewish community. It became important to have a cantor that knew how to sing well, because some of them were somewhat difficult tunes, but they were universally used among the German Jewish community. And by the 14th century, um, we have people writing about these tunes extensively um, and writing about their importance and how it's very important to pray only with these tunes and have a cantor that is familiar with the tunes. And these tunes managed to stay and remain consistent throughout the entire Ashkenazic Jewish community um, throughout um, the years where all Ashkenazic Jews today continue, all synagogues, no matter whether they were from northern Eastern Europe, from Lithuania, southern Eastern Europe, from um, Poland, Galicia, Hungary, Germany, Western Europe, wherever Jews lived, they used these same nusach, these same tunes for prayer, these same unique tunes, tunes for prayer for each and every occasion. And um, over the years, these, um, these, the nusach really stayed the same, despite you know, being moving around and despite spreading out to different places, we managed to retain this nusach, this way to pray. Spartic Jews never really had songs for prayer. They rather would just chant the prayers. Um, they didn't have songs till fairly recently, uh, but they did chant the prayers. And their chants, at, at least in each area, the North African Jews, Moroccan Tunisian Jews had a certain way they would chant the prayers. Jews in other places had, a, had ways to chant the prayers. But Ashkenazic Jews had this unique nusach, this unique tunes for prayer. In more recent years, starting in the, um, starting in the um, 20th, in the late 19th century, um, as opera became very popular throughout Europe, um, Jews, um, the chazanim, the cantors, began to also write their own additional tunes in addition to the nusach. And many great cantors in the late 19th, early 20th centuries in Eastern Europe and then later here and then later here in the United States and Israel and other countries wrote their own um, opera-style tunes for various different prayers and added that to the nusach, never taking away from the nusach, always keeping to the standard tune for prayers, but then with specific prayers, adding their own tunes. Um, and there were many famous chazanim, Yossel Rosenblatt is probably the most famous one, um, many of which, um, and those that made it to the 20th century, were able to um, put out records or reels of their own music, um, some of which we still have today, um, and many of that music then, uh, by then of course, Jews, we, we like everybody, had the um, music notes, so we were able to record um, music as well. But what's interesting is that though we always had this nusach, this version of prayer, and though Jews sung prayers, as we mentioned for a very long time, cantors sung prayers, and there were tunes for various prayers, different communities developed different tunes for various prayers over the years. Um, there's been a lot of song. And the truth is, in recent years, in the 20th century, in the last hundred or so years, there's been a huge growth of song in prayer. Many, many new songs were composed over the years. And there's been this huge growth of song in prayer where much of the prayers are sung. Um, and I think a big part of that is, um, is due to people's less familiarity with prayer. People are less familiar with prayers than they used to be. And as Victor pointed out earlier, it's easy to remember them when they're sung. Um, so there's been a large growth. Many synagogues sing a lot of their prayers. 
But despite that, historically, Jews did not use instruments in prayer. Now, in the early 19th century, in the early 19th century, there was a movement um, of reformation in Germany. I've spoken about it a few times, which was a move to, originally it started as a move to make Judaism more Christian-like under a um, belief that if Jews were as similar as possible to Christians, then they would no longer hate us. Didn't work out too well. But uh, anyway, that was the start of this movement. And so as part of that, at the time, um, many churches had organs, music that they would play while they would in, in their prayers. And so they suggested we, that they bring an organ into the synagogue. Bring an organ to the synagogue to play, not on Shabbat, because we know you're not allowed to play music on Shabbat, but to pray on a weekday when it's not Shabbat. Or to have a non-Jew play in the synagogue on Shabbat. They're not Jewish, they don't have to keep the laws of Shabbat. And so there was this suggestion to bring music into the synagogue. So one of the most prominent rabbis at the time, Rav Moshe Sofer, the Chetam Sofer as he was known, who lived in what today is Bratislav in Slovakia, but really the most prominent rabbi in Central Europe um, at the time, um, was, um, came, uh, came out very vehemently against it. And so did many, many other rabbis, saying that um, while there may not be an explicit ban on music and prayer in Judaism, it's clear that Historically, Jews have always avoided um, adding music to our prayers in the synagogues. So we did have music in the Holy Temple. We never have any record of music in synagogues. We never played music in synagogues. Now, on Shabbat itself, our sages banned music, playing music in, uh, uh, at all, under any circumstances. But we've never, ever had music in synagogues. And... Um, and therefore, clearly music is not meant to be used in accompaniment with our prayers. While song has always existed in synagogue, we've had various songs in synagogues going all the way back. Um, we've had tunes, we've had the nusach that was universal throughout the Ashkenazi community since probably the 10th century or 11th century. We've had these, this universal tunes for the synagogue, and we've always sung our prayers. We never did it with the accompaniment of music. And not because Jews didn't have instruments and didn't know how to play. They did. We always had music at events, like weddings. We always had music. But we never added it to the synagogue. Clearly, we are not supposed to be playing music in the synagogue or as part of our prayers. Why not? Why not? So he did not tell us why not. He did not tell us why we should not be playing music in our prayers. But he did make that point, and that was widely accepted by most all traditional um, Jewish communities, where all of the communities that were loyal to Jewish tradition did not bring music into their synagogues, generally, and have not still till today. Although they sing extensively, um, and there's a lot of singing in synagogues, and they paid a lot of money to cantors with beautiful voices to sing the prayers, but without, and often many synagogues added choirs. Um, many synagogues, if you go to some of the big synagogues in Europe, you see they, they have a whole stand for the choirs. Many synagogues added choirs, but they did not add music. Why not? So he, they, they, the Chetam Sofer himself did not explain it. But in Jewish mysticism, we do have an explanation. In Jewish mysticism, it tells us that song is the key to the soul. 
The soul is um, the soul is expressed, as I mentioned earlier, by song. Song is the real way we can express ourselves. However, even song itself can be expressed in two ways. Song can be expressed with music. We essentially are expressing it through an instrument, not direct, not the human expressing it directly. And you could express it with your voice, without any other accompaniment, without anything else helping you, just your voice, just your pure human expression. So true song expression, true soul expression doesn't happen with music. Yes, music sounds much better when you're listening to it. Yes, music feels much better. It's much better. It, 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 um, it gets you into the mood much better, perhaps, when you're listening to it. But when you sing yourself, that is the greatest way to express yourself, when one sings alone. And that is why, interestingly, although we did have music at weddings and at other celebratory occasions, Jews always had music. When Jews would sit around and wanted, and Jews wrote songs and would sing songs, on Shabbat, we sing Zmirot. We have songs that we sing on Shabbat. And when we don't use music in general. But even in other occasions when we would sing, we often, more often would sing without music. And Jews had this old tradition of singing without playing music. Because true human expression, true musical expression, really comes through singing, not through music. Through the soul expressing itself directly. And that perhaps is the reason why historically Jews have not played music as part of our prayers. So let me just finish up. So song does have a very, very important role in Judaism. And it always has. And we've always had Jewish songs. Unfortunately, um, for much of early Judaism, besides the tunes that we have for the Torah chanting, we haven't had a good way of recording our music. And as a result, most music was forgotten. We did retain some things. We retained the, the tunes for chanting the Torah. We retained the Nusach, the tunes for Ashkenazi, Ashkenazic tunes for prayer. We did manage to retain. But many songs, the tunes of songs, um, were largely lost over the years. <coughs> However, um, and we don't know how many Jewish songs there were, how many tunes they had at any particular time. Again, they didn't really record them. Um, Jews did not use musical notes, even once musical notes were widely available. Um, at least till the um, 18th, 17th, 18th centuries, Jews did not generally use musical notes. Um, so they weren't well recorded. However, in the 18th, beginning of the 18th century, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov started a new movement called Hasidism, which Hasidism is about digging into our soul and building a relationship with God through the, based on the teachings of our mystics, of our Kabbalists over the years, and it's about building a soul connection with God. And so Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov himself greatly encouraged music. He himself sung a lot, and descriptions of him, from descriptions of him, um, we, uh, it's described a lot, his powerful voice and how he would sing, so he sung extensively, and so did his students composed many, many songs, and it really gave way to a whole new genre, a whole new um, genre within Jewish music, which became almost the most dominant and largest um, genre of Jewish music that we have still till today, which was Hasidic music. 
And Hasidic music included both many, many soulful songs, many, many lively songs, um, with a very, very particular, um, very unique um, genre, very unique um, type of music. Um, it was a lot, a lot of joyful songs, songs of yearning. And the, the Hasidic music really, really grew over the years until by today we have thousands and thousands of Hasidic songs that were composed um, throughout the 18th, 19th centuries um, uh, by various Hasidic Jews in the old country, various Hasidic leaders, individuals that were composed and then sung and then taught from person to person. Many of these already were written down with notes because they did have notes and they did have the ability to write. Um, and generally these songs, while they often were put to, mu to music and to, to uh, played with instruments, they were mostly sung by, by voice, just by voice alone. Chassidah would get together and sing together or sing alone and sing these songs, sing as they prayed, but sing themselves, sing these songs, um, these Hasidic music songs. Starting in the, from the second half of the 20th century, there was an explosion in general in music. Before, um, before the early 20th century, uh, if you wanted to listen to music, the only way to do was to have an instrument and start playing. But starting in the 20th century, we had the ability to record music. And once recording began, a person can make a song and then sell the records. And, uh, you know, for then, first they had the original reels and the eight tracks and then the um, records we had. But by mid-20th century records, everyone had a record player. Records were widely available and um, people recorded their music and it was, became very, very widespread. And so Jews continued to record their own music um, and much Jewish music was recorded in the 20th century. Today there's a huge, huge um, library of Jewish-themed music recorded by Jews for Jews, um, often um, recorded to words from Scripture, from the Torah, for, to often recorded to prayers, often their own, with their own creative lyrics. Sometimes the Jews, Hasidim, often most Hasidic music is without lyrics. Most Hasidic song is without lyrics. But much of the Jewish music developed following the Hasidic style. So it developed a lot following, although it, um, it evolved over the years, but it developed a lot following the style of its own music. And today you can search Jewish music, and there's a huge, huge, huge library of Jewish music. Now, I mentioned earlier that our sages put limits on music because just as music can be very powerful, it expresses our soul, music can also be extremely negative. There's a lot of... And that's because... Because music is so powerful, anything powerful could be used for good and it could be used for bad. It's a matter of how you use it. If it's used for good, it's very, very powerful. But if it's used for bad, it's very, very, very negative. A lot of music has been used for negativity, has been used to develop violent cultures, violent kind of music with violent lyrics. Lyrics that share unhealthy feelings, unhealthy expressions that create unhealthy feelings in the listeners. They express your soul. They bring out deep feelings within you. And bad music then brings out bad feelings and has a bad impact on you. And so a culture with violent music is going to become a violent culture. People listening to violent music will become violent. People listening, if there's depressing music, will make you very, very depressed. Soulful music 
will make you contemplative, will make you meditative, will make you relaxed. Joyous music will make you happy. But it depends on the type of music. So negative music can be very, very negative. Music um, created, now not only that, not only the lyrics matter, a lot, the music that someone creates, the tunes a person makes expresses their soul. That's the greatest way to express what's going on inside. You express your feelings, express who you are with the music you write. So a composer is expressing themselves with music. A bad person who writes music, their music is expressing negativity. Even without the words, even without the lyrics, the music itself is a negative music. The music itself is unhealthy. So just as music can be something positive, music can also be something negative. So it's important for a person to limit what music they listen to. Not to be able to listen to all music. Not all music is healthy. Not all music is good for you. Some music is negative. Some music is bad. Interestingly, though, um, the Hasidim did have a tendency to what they called elevate negative music. In other words, they would find negative music and they, that they felt was not expressive of a positive thing, a positive soul, and they would adjust it. They would tweak it, tweak it a little bit, fix it a little bit, and recreate it as a powerful, soulful song. And there are a number of songs that, that sit over the years, kind of popular folk songs from Eastern Europe, from other places that sit over the years, took, tweaked, adjusted, changed it from the original, um, and put a more, what they felt was a more positive, soulful spin on it. So music itself can be very, very powerful and is very powerful and therefore it's a very important thing. Um, the ultimate music, we said, is the music of the soul is with the voice, which is why our prayers is voice only. Um, and, but so music itself can be very powerful. Um, we don't believe, we have to be careful to avoid negative music. We also have to be, our sages also ban frivolous music, music for, you know, at a bar or at a disco that has no value other than just dancing and just celebrating uh, without celebrating anything in particular, without, um, without, without any value or purpose. Um, but music itself is something that we believe is very, very meaningful. It expresses the soul and really express a person. And there is a long history of Jewish music, both in our prayers and in general, and uh, definitely one should you know, listen to and reach out to um, and um, uh, uh, listen to Jewish music. Today you could go on Apple, on iTunes or um, Spotify or YouTube and there's no shortage of Jewish, great Jewish music out there that you can listen to. But even when one listens to music, one should always be careful to only listen to positive music written by positive people, written by good people, with, the, with positive lyrics, with meaningful lyrics. So, uh, so it's important, and it's important. Music is very powerful, and today we have access to it like we never did. You don't even need a record player. You have it on your phone. All you need is to hit play. Right now, you have it playing in your car. You get into the car, and it just kind of turns on automatically. Uh, but today, the beauty is, unlike the radio, where you couldn't choose what music you wanted to listen to, today you can have your own playlists, and you can make sure you only listen to good music and 
Gelding had the positive power from music.